this is the space cowboy. I'm an intergalactic traveler from the Federation planet Earth. Gordo? <laughs> How do you know my name, mister? Listen, Gordo, uh, my name is Santa Claus, and I'm going to give you the biggest Christmas present that you ever had. I better give you my address then. No, 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 don't worry about it, kid. Now, this is important. Something you got to remember for a long time. Yahoo. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the podcast that swims in cinema's deep end. I'm Paolo Caron, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and this week we're joined by writer and director Tony DiBiase to discuss the 2000 film Frequency, a sci-fi family drama from director Gregory Hoblet. I don't have any notes this week, so here's Carrie with the plot summary. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to talk to your father 30 years ago through a ham radio? Neither had John Sullivan until it happened one night. John uses the radio to connect with his firefighting father, Frank. They work together to prevent Frank's imminent death, but when complications arise, will they be able to get back on the same frequency? Frequency is a film that all three of us actually kind of like, despite its problems. But one of those problems is the dialogue. We'll elaborate on that in the discussion, but I just want to say that when I went to sample for this episode, I couldn't find a single significant conversation that wasn't both needlessly slow and deeply, deeply boring out of context. So because of that, our only sample this week is the half-assed bit of exposition given to vaguely explain how a ham radio could communicate with someone 30 years in the past. The exposition in question is an interview with real-life theoretical physicist Dr. Brian Greene, and it's playing on a TV as Jim Caviezel's character digs around in various drawers in his house. So, here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of frequency. The Aurora Borealis, to anyone who's seen it, is one of the stunning events of your lifetime. Uh, they're brighter these days. Is something going on there? Do they tie in with your field? Uh, where do they come it's from? It's a stunning sight. It's really beautiful to look at. I, I don't think we've seen one quite this bright for maybe 30 years. But from the point of view of physics and string theory, no, there's nothing really that we gain from studying the Aurora Borealis. Now, history does teach us that every time we thought we had it figured out, there was some major discovery right around the bend that required a complete dramatic change in our understanding of the laws of physics. This is a phrase people have begun to hear, string theory. Yes, yes, that's right. Now, string theory dramatically changes our understanding of space and time. For example, it turns out that string theory requires our universe to have 10 or possibly even 11 dimensions. And the strange thing is, some physicists are even pursuing the idea that there might be more than one time dimension. So in addition to time as we know it, psychological time which seems to organize events in the universe around us, there may be a second time dimension where the universe evolves in some different manner. All right, we have another new guest this week. Guest, will you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Tony DiBiase. Thanks for having me, guys. Tony! Glad we can have you. Uh, so I didn't know that's how you say your last name. DiBiase. Yes. Learn something awesome. new every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you picked Frequency, uh -huh. so... Uh, what... Yeah, why'd you pick Frequency? Yeah. Well, I wanted to do Butterfly Effect first, <laughs> but I must take it. Because um, I, I love Frequency to a degree. I watched it when I was a kid, 
and I, it has some nostalgic meanings for me. But, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was fun. It's close enough to Butterfly Effect. Yeah. So. Yeah, very similar. <laughs> yeah. You find a lot of overlap yeah. watching it. Yeah. <laughs> hilarious when it shouldn't be hilarious. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it was definitely like a, a movie I watched all the time as a kid. I mean, it came out... Like right before I was a teenager, so not much of my childhood, but yeah. What made you guys choose this as one of the options? I, I've just because I've seen it so many times, I've always remembered what's so weird about it. The okay. fact that it's, <laughs> it just has such a strange uh, series of things that it's trying to do, and it doesn't do them fully successfully. But the fact that it even tries them makes it so interesting to me. Right. So yeah, yeah, I just it, well put. Yeah, it's exactly it's exactly the type of thing I wanted to talk this, about. I I had never seen. This this movie until I was in my 20s. Oh, man. And <laughs> I actually, when I talked, I talked to my mom today on the phone, and sh I told her we were recording uh, tonight, and she's like, oh, what movie are you watching? And I told her Frequency with Dennis Quaid, and she went, that's nice. <laughs> she didn't know what it was. Yeah. Love you, mom. <laughs> what, what made you watch that in your 20s? Like, Well, I, know I think because I roomed with people who... Watched okay. it when okay. they were younger. <laughs> so they were like, you and have like, to watch you it. Never yeah. seen the um, cool. And man, I missed out. Yeah. What a hilarious but yet boring movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll we'll get into what makes it boring <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But I guess I guess we should just start because the core premise involves Jimmy Caviezel. Jim, Jimmy Caviezel and uh, Daddy Quaid uh, talking using ham radios and sunspots in some sort of... <laughs> sunspots. No, it was the Aurora Borealis. But they... Oh, they say sunstorms also. Because yes. there's that headline that says, like, sunstorms ending on the very... The, like, the night that the Aurora Borealis fades away. Yeah, uh, I... Can you see the Aurora Borealis in Queens? There's no way. There, yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I feel I, like... No way. Yeah, I, I really have no knowledge of that at all, but it seems pretty unlikely. It seems like there would be something dangerously wrong with Earth's magnetic field if that was happening. And we're going to find out later that it's totally possible. Yeah, this whole movie is based on a true story. <laughs> true story of time travel. Yeah, this... this the science... <laughs> I mean, I don't. They, they Hollywood does this all the time, where they make a movie that's positioned on a totally unacceptable <laughs> leap in scientific logic. They're like, and, just believe this. this. Yeah, it makes sense. Like Tony, you brought up Day After Tomorrow <laughs> during this movie, and it's not really the same type of movie at all. But it's another thing where they just are like, yeah, whatever. This, oh yeah, exactly. sure. Yeah. The science exists for the purpose of this also movie. starring Dennis Quaid. Yes, exactly. there you go. That's why yeah. I tied it. And well, and they kind of trick you into like when when Jim Caviezel is going through the memorabilia of his dad's stuff, and they're talking on the TV about it. So yeah. they're like making you think that they're explaining like what's yeah. going yeah. on. Yeah, but, but they, they aren't yeah, really. They're not at all. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That part they explained it on the pseudo TV. Pseudo explanation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So all of us at some point pointed out that. The time travel in this movie is basically butterfly effects. <laughs> time travel rules. Yeah. With you, like a you little... almost picked butterfly. I know. Yeah. It's so, really crazy. It's yeah. I literally didn't even think of it until we were like watching the movie. Yeah. Like, oh my god. Yeah. This movie really is like uh, if Butterfly Effect and Looper had a baby together. But in the past. With a tiny with bit. Daddy issues. Yep. Like back to the future. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I actually heard Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson directed Looper, right? Yep. Yeah. I heard him talk about it, that he said Looper was in his head a father-son movie, but like I'm not going to be you in the future type of thing. But that yeah. he wanted to work it into the time travel oh. aspect. So it's frequency. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No one would ever dare admit that they watch <laughs> Frequency and they're like, I can do this better. Yeah. But at the same time. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> At the same time, though, I feel like if you are a film person, you watch Frequency, the, the main thing you're thinking is, oh my god, I, I could do this better. <laughs> Alright, so, well, god, where to start? Which elements of the... Of the okay, um... Well, so, let's explain. So, yeah. Jim Caviezel, his name in the movie is John. John gets his ham radio from his friend Gordo, and he sets it up. And he starts hearing these messages from this mysterious person. And they start talking about the Mets. And then they find out that the person on the other end of the radio is talking about the Mets 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but at the, at the same time when they do that, the way they show the, the first ham radio scene, Jim Caviezel sits down, he like gets it working, and this guy starts talking to him. And the movie shoots it like it's a total mystery, but it's Dennis Quaid clearly doing a bad Queen's accent. And you, oh, I thought he was doing a pretty good job. I think you just, we all just really like Dennis Quaid. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, doubt. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, he won me over with It Takes Two. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but the point being that there's no way that you don't know. I mean, if you're seeing the movie, you probably know what the plot is. But even if you were, like totally blind to what was going to happen. You can tell it's Dennis Quaid, and it's shot oh, yeah, in this, before like, they even find, fake reveal. Yeah, and before they even find the ham radio, there's, like, 20 minutes of them showing Dennis Quaid fighting fires and teaching oh, his son right. yeah. how to play baseball and all this stuff. Being an all-American dad. Yeah. yeah. Well, they got to establish... He was. They got to establish his dad. Yeah. Because yeah. like, otherwise... <laughs> Ultimate dad. Yeah. yeah, really great, badass dad. Yeah. But he talks to... They talk to each other over the ham radio, and eventually comes out that... Jim Caviezel is talking to his dad, and he's like, Dad, you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> and then and the boy, like, do it. Stop fucking with me. And there is the inciting incident. And so <clears throat> so where this gets into butterfly effect territory is that after his the son uh, tells dad about the information, uh, Quaid goes to the fire that he's supposed to die at, and he lives. And then... He lives by flying out <laughs> of this, like, slide yeah. that goes through a building and then shoots him into a river. Also, that factory, did they say it was an abandoned factory? I, they didn't really say it. who were those people that were in the fire? It I was think runaways. they were squatters. Runaways. Runaways or something. Yeah, but it was just they like... little runaways. Yeah. So they must have burned down that Other building. There's literally yeah. no one else in that building. Yeah. I found out in the trivia that Dennis Quaid actually got 16 stitches wow. from doing that stunt oh. where he goes through that shoot. Wow, and he did it himself, too. Yeah. I like him even more now. Brave yeah. man. Yeah, he's he pretty, is brave. Pretty cool guy. Dennis Quaid. But as he's going down that slide, though, he's, like, getting... I Well, he isn't getting new memories, because this is happening to him for the first time, but they're, like, showing the new memories that Jim Caviezel is getting for each... I guess, as like, his eye rapidly the longer, Yeah, the longer he's down the slide, the yeah. more it's, like, a little bit more, a little bit more. And The um, only reason it's not, like, butterfly effect is because 
Jim Caviezel's brain doesn't hemorrhage afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> but it does that same butterfly effect thing where it's like, you've changed the future in this one small element and it affects like only what it needs to affect for plot convenience. Yeah. It does not really, like... The, yeah, it wasn't thought out there's very well. So <laughs> many, there's so many constants that like don't change at all. <laughs> it That's the, the butterfly effect element is just those new memories on top of the sort of application of chaos theory that just doesn't really matter. Like, just enough for its own purposes. Well, yeah, and after they talk on the radio, and they're like, oh, I saved your life, I have all these memories, but you die from cancer. (laughs) (laughs) You better stop smoking. (laughs) Which, man, if there is ever a plot point that's glossed over, it's the cancer plot point. (laughs) (laughs) But then they're like, uh, you know, we... We need to bond again because I, even though I have all these new memories, yeah. I still don't know you, Dad. Yeah, I don't so know they who, stay up yeah. all night talking about the Mets and end up kissing through crossfading. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice crossfade yeah. shot where it looks like they're the, gonna make out. Like Forms a heart. The persona <laughs> shot. <Yeah. laughs> well, and don't they? They talk about how he and his dad fell in love, or not him, and his dad, <laughs> him and his mom. <laughs> yeah, well, they do yeah. talk about it, but it is a, like a father-son romance. So yeah, the first, it really yeah. is. The first half of the movie is like, man, I just, I wish my dad was here because I, my <laughs> life totally fell apart. My mom was a shitty mom who could not instill any <laughs> Which values. Which is so weird because his mom is portrayed as being an awesome mom. Yeah. Her mom, maybe, it's, I don't know if it's Elizabeth Mitchell's part, or fault, but... Elizabeth Mitchell in this movie is like a dumb robot. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, just like, I, I didn't want to say it during the movie when you guys were like, I think I like Elizabeth Mitchell. She's really great. And I was just like, because <laughs> every shot in this movie, she no. comes Secretly in. Secretly hating Elizabeth Mitchell. Every scene, she's just like, like a grinning doofus. Yeah, she's okay, like, you're right. She wasn't that like, great in this movie. And remember that scene where... Well, she was a good mom. Oh, yeah, and she's great and lost. And, but okay. it just like... Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that, that and shot... That, that shot after... Oh, my <laughs> yeah. God! <laughs> Isn't she end up being Mrs. Claus? Oh, she's Mrs. Claus, all right. Yeah. Well, in this, she's Mrs. Quaid. <laughs> Santa Quaid. Um, but after... So after Quaid survives the fire... Um, and he goes to the hospital and he sees her. She like does that dog head tilt thing. <laughs> yeah. inside. Like every like even the scene where after she's like almost strangled to death when she goes to cry, her cry is literally her smile, but with her eyes closed. <laughs> it's, like, it's like she can only she always has like big rosy cheeks and big like eyes with like the makeup just like emphasizes her eyeballs so but much. But when she's at the hospital and she's being a nurse. She corrects that doctor for making a dumb mistake. But ends up saving that her own killer. Yeah. <gasps> so How smart is she? <laughs> <laughs> well, she doesn't have access to the ham radio. She has no idea. Also, our continuing game, uh, name a personality trait of Elizabeth yeah. Mitchell's character. Um, uh... Oh man, this is hard. Yeah, I mean, she's a mom. Complacent. She loves, she loves her son. Yeah. 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 yeah that's pretty much it. And she ages well. That's Is that a trait? Yeah, everyone in this movie ages well. <laughs> oh because God. all they do when they age is they just get latex plastic skin put over their face. Oh, man, yeah. Some of the worst makeup. And it's, like, really, it's... 
such there's so little makeup needed for this movie and they fuck up all of it. <laughs> they really do and there's so many bad wigs yeah. horrible wigs although Dennis Quaid nails his physicality as an uh, older man yeah. yes. though no one else goes no. that far like uh, Andre Brower is just like whatever I'm just gonna, just keep they put a little grey mist in his sideburns yeah. and yeah. call it but he's supposed to be like what 60 yeah and, like, 66 years old right? something like yeah. that and um <laughs> Elizabeth Mitchell just is like the same and he's just the same and the Dennis Quaid is like hunched over and has like a gut. <laughs> yeah. Like, terribly. He commits. Yeah. Well, and this movie also has the thing where they were like, oh, we have a villain. We need to give him a terrible wig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's just six... like, just like No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, villain needs a terrible wig. What other movies have terrible wigs for the villain? I mean, the 80s. Oh, yeah. All the 80s. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You probably also extend this to the 70s, too. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't wigs in the 70s. It was the real hair. Yeah, that's um, true. Oh, yeah. Some bad hair in this movie. Dennis Quaid looking sharp I, as all. I think the reason... I think for me, the fundamental reason why the time travel doesn't work is because there are no parameters put on the magic of the time travel in the movie yeah like we're we the audience are just su supposed to suspend all belief like yeah. anything can happen there's no rules time like aurora borealis equals time. infinite magic yeah all right well and, and and at least in like good time travel movies like looper which is like uh, it's an Still, okay yeah time travel movie but most good time travel movies they laid out some kind of law where they're like okay you can time travel but yeah. you can't talk to the they set up these their own specific people yeah. or they limit <laughs> what the movie's about so it's not about everything yeah. so that because well, yeah, like think about if they did commit to like specific time like time travel rules where like things legitimately changed and they still kept cutting back and forth between like 1969 and 1999 but now 1999 has like all these different people alive and the game is different and then Jim Caviezel doesn't know that and he knows this and it's like there's so like yeah the reason, yeah the reason like we, we always say Groundhog Day is the best time travel movie even though it's not a time travel movie <laughs> yeah. because it sticks to Bill Murray's point of view and it's like there's no way we can explain this I think they said the original explanations were he was cursed by a witch and aliens are doing it and they're like oh, they're just, let's just not explain it yeah. and Primer where Primer they, oh, they like really yeah. they just they give you a bunch of science and stuff but kind of leave it mysterious even to the characters yeah. and you're so busy trying to solve other things <laughs> that you don't worry about it so much yeah um but these this movie like really tries to be like make it front and center um but then have it just work in these like very flimsy ways well do one of you guys want to talk about the wallet oh the wallet <laughs> okay so part of jim caviezel well we haven't even gotten to the serial killer yet yeah so okay let's yeah uh yeah, let's, I'm jumping the gun again. <laughs> so the first half of the movie is Jim Caviezel and his dad bonding and them saving each other and you know falling back in love it's with great. being they do it really father well. and son. Yeah. It's yeah. actually really nice to watch. Yeah, yeah really occasionally, even during stupid moments, like you point out, when they're talking and they're not even <laughs> pressing, pressing the, the button, button to work the radio anymore. <laughs> they just, bond, they just bond so much that they don't need it. It's the Aurora Borealis. <laughs> they're just pressing buttons heart anymore. Heart to heart over 30 years. Yeah. But, um, like, yeah, during that scene, it's still kind of like, I get 
why this movie was yeah. made. I understand totally, the yeah. emotion there, and I understand why people would like this movie. It seems like Steven Spielberg should have directed the first half of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> totally. He loves daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, okay, so, so that's the first half, and really, like, nothing else happens except well, they introduce some of the characters, and... He saves... Kind yeah, of. He saves yeah. dad from the fire, and he tells his dad about cancer, and then there's, like, after he tells the dad about cancer, there's, like, a 10 minute period where nothing of value happens at all. <laughs> There's a lot of montage scenes of <laughs> yeah. like Dennis Quaid teaching his son how to ride his bike and uh, then Jim, goes to the hospital. Jim yeah. Caviezel going to visit his mom and her asking her how lying she was. And a lot of like shots of things that don't matter. <laughs> that like, like during the scene with the fire, there's a shot, and keep in mind, there's like uh, it's been established that someone is going to die in the fire, and Dennis Quaid could die in the fire, and they cut to, like, a shot of, a like, a leg from the fire hose coming down to, like, plant the fire hose so that it doesn't move. And, like, but it's like, who, like, that, that <laughs> shot gets, like, ten seconds in the movie, equal time to, like, the woman being, there's a, a person in the building! Like, they have no idea what to prioritize shot-wise or content-wise. Well, so this guy, right. the guy who directed this, let's just talk about him. Okay. Because he's a terrible is he? director. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even write down his name because... Gregory Hoblet. There we go. Ugh, Hoblet. Hoblet. <laughs> Well, he directed, um, he's directed actually a lot of television, but um, the other movie I saw that he directed that I had heard of and seen was Untraceable. Oh, (laughs) man. With Diane Lane. It's like a a cyber thriller, right? Yeah, it's like Fear.com if it was like a police movie. It is not good. Yeah. But it falls in the same purview as Frequency, like... Oh yeah, you made Frequency. Why don't you make this cyber thriller? <laughs> like he should have made Firewall as well. Okay. Uh, <laughs> probably couldn't have directed that big of a name, Harrison Ford. No. But <laughs> Dennis Quaid's a presumably a very nice guy. Based on that Ellen thing, where he just does what Ellen. What I'm Dennis. I'm Dennis Quaid. <laughs> so like, oh, that's yeah, so funny. That's every movie he does. He the does. guy who wrote this is actually so Noah Emmerich is in this movie, and we all agreed that we love Noah Emmerich. And actually, yes. he's really good in this movie. Yeah, yeah he's, he's good because it's he's playing to his type. He's playing basically a variation on the character he always plays. So he played the year before in Truman Show as like yeah. the best buddy, oh, yeah. but also a little bit of that same character is what you see in Little Children. Uh, where he's the, um, I mean, he's he's sort of like a tertiary character in that. He's more of a bully, but he kind of plays the maladjusted adult. Well, uh, and he's on The Americans now. Oh, yeah, he's he's yeah, he's so good. He's Noah Emmerich is really awesome. He's one of those people that gets no credit for how yeah. reliable and consistent yeah. he is. Well, uh, speaking of Noah Emmerich, this movie was written by his brother, and his brother... Is not a good writer. <laughs> no. And do they have any relation to Roland Emmerich? No, that that's that, that's that a different guy. Foreign, I'm right? pretty sure he's yeah, he's European. Okay. Who's Roland Emmerich? He Director wrote Day After, after Tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Oh! And Independence Day yeah. in twenty fifteen. Oh man. And that's... all that new one, Stonewall. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. And that movie that claimed that Shakespeare didn't actually write all of his plays. What? what Shakespeare in Love? It was called like Anonymous. <laughs> it came out a couple of years ago, but it was uh, it was this movie where, I, I, there you go, uh, they, they, they argued that, like, Shakespeare 
took like credit for these Whoa. plays that were written by another Bull. playwright, oh. and it was like a big expose, and it was um, of course like, a terrible movie that no one <laughs> saw because who who really was like also that's old news. Yeah, it's, it too, and that conspiracy theory has been going for a long time. Well, so Noah Emmerich's brother, whoever Emmerich, he. Toby Emmerich. Oh, Toby Emmerich. He wrote this movie, and then he wrote The Last Mimsy. And that's it. <laughs> Another movie with questionable science. <laughs> What's oh that movie God. about? I know. Isn't Ray, it like Rain an Wilson alien is a teacher in it, so. Yeah, like an alien comes and tries to teach all these adults a lesson, and, and then he leaves. <laughs> it's like E.T., but not. It's like E.T. mixed with Last of the Mohicans, maybe. I'll take your word for it. I it's live action? It. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But computer animated, I think. Oh, Some parts I was of it. Picturing it's, a uh, I an know, animated movie. I know for <laughs> sure Rain Wilson is live action for the entire <laughs> okay. movie. I, they I, can say that much. That's like <laughs> all I can say about Last Mimsy. Oh, I was thinking The Secret of Nim. That's why. Yeah, uh, that's definitely animated. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they change all this stuff in the past where his dad's still alive and everything's good. But nothing, basically nothing in Jim Caviezel's life changes. Yeah, He's still that's true. like a nothing. miserable yeah. single guy, and because even when his dad lived through the fire, he still died twenty years later, <laughs> right? Well, and of, of cancer. Yeah, but you'd think that would be enough time to like yeah, raise still a feel kid, better. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and not to skip ahead, but at the end, Jim Caviezel's life becomes great and fantastic and he has a wife and a pre or a pregnant wife and a kid and his dad's still alive and so does that mean that he only can have a good life if, if his, his dad is are, alive yeah both parents oh, because both, even sorry, when yeah, his mother parents. dies he's still miserable yeah, yeah and so, it looks like the house is even more run down at that point <laughs> yeah but like <laughs> once once yeah. both of his parents survive he gets new furniture yeah. he gets like a nicer lamp yeah. but he stuff. still wants it's just to live brighter in general yeah yeah but he still shining. wants to live in that house yeah always <laughs> well and tony brought the brought up a good point uh of that both of his parents have to live which is a good segue into the second half of this yes. movie which is after jimmy saves his dad well let me can i set it up a little bit yeah okay sorry i just because there's in the very beginning in the very first minute of the movie, before the title has appeared on screen, you there's like a tr a truck driving. There's this guy driving like a what, like a tanker? Yeah, yeah. Tanker. A tanker, and he's listening to the radio, and the radio's like it's 1969 or whatever, like <laughs> really unsubtle time-setting line it is. And then he says uh, another victim of the Nightingale murders was found, and. Uh, Quickly changes the radio quickly station. Changes, yeah, quickly changes the He's station. like, I don't care about this. <laughs> this doesn't matter. Taker, and then yeah. a bunch of crazy <clears throat> shit happens, and there's a hilarious action scene. A little bit later, maybe like another ten minutes later. Right, because it's like right when they introduced Jim Caviezel. Yeah, it's before the ham radio stuff gets too involved. Jim Caviezel goes to a crime scene, he finds, they see a skeleton, the skeleton is presumably like, uh, just like another one of these Nightingale murders. And then it's, completely dropped other, like pretty much like <laughs> never touched on and we get this whole father-son love story uh and the fire and cancer and all this stuff and, <laughs> and bonding bonding and then almost exactly halfway through the movie yeah. this is a two hour long movie so we get like basically a good 50 minutes worth of movie to help us forget anything that might have been said <laughs> over the first 10 minutes 
a serial killer is added to the plot and kind of just takes over the plot. <laughs> Stops like they're like, we get it. Uh, it's almost like a producer of the movie kind of just said, um, like, sorry about that boring, shitty, touchy, feely movie, guys. Let's get let's get what you really want. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The tonal shift in genre of this movie reminded oh. me a lot of Sunshine. Yes. Oh, wow. Nice. Another movie. Yeah, yeah totally. Where, where it's like... With questionable science. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Where the, the guy, I love when the guy goes sun crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, that movie is probably the best Danny Boyle movie. Not to talk it up too much because it is kind of hokey at parts. It but, is, but Sunshine but is great. Yeah, it's Sunshine really is cool. great. I love how yeah. you're watching it and you're like, okay, this is a sci-fi thriller and, or, and it's about these people who are going to save the planet and they have to get to the sun and then there's like this serial killer yeah. element added at the end for and no like reason. And like right at the end. Yeah, like like right 30 at minutes the end. At the end. <laughs> I think there's like no better sign that you don't know how to write a movie where you're like, oh, how do I end this like uh, really uh, popular like, yes. yeah. yeah. I don't know how to tie in this meditation about feelings yeah. and love and the universe and life. Uh, just fuck it. <laughs> just someone <laughs> kill him. Yeah, that's what I kept thinking about with Sunshine because yeah. it's such a weird totally see that, yeah. tonal shift where you're like, what? What kind of movie this am is I a watching? Completely different movie. The, the movie I thought of, but it was like the good example of what does this is something wild. Because something oh, wild, yeah. the first half is like sort of this like goofball, screwball, romantic road trip movie where Jeff Daniels gets picked up by this by Melanie Griffith and she's this kooky woman and he's a, a uptight businessman and she makes him loosen up and I know this is nothing like the first half of Frequency, but then at the midway point we meet Melanie Griffith's ex-boyfriend and he's like this very dangerous man and... Jeff Daniels suddenly finds himself in over his head, and I've the never back. Seen this. It sounds great. It's really great. Yeah, you should watch it. I'm <laughs> okay. not gonna say anymore. Yeah, but it does exactly what this movie can't do, which is smoothly transition right. from one point <laughs> to another. And we can talk right there now about the transitions yes. throughout the film and how oh, god awful they man. are. <laughs> okay, everybody needs to name their favorite transition because this movie had so many good ones. Right. And by good ones, I mean bad ones. Right. <laughs> so you, okay, my favorite was when they're having this barbecue <laughs> and, you know, it's in 1969 and Dennis Quaid gets all the kids together, and he's like, oh, all right, yeah. everybody, and he has his camera, and he's like, everybody say amazing bits, and he takes this photograph, <laughs> and immediately the photograph, instead of us seeing what the photograph looks like, it just turns into an inverted photograph, <laughs> yeah. and it blurs, and then it slowly blends into an inverted uh, frame of what they're transitioning to, which is a skeleton being excavated. <laughs> yeah, what a, I mean, and that sums yeah. up the tonal shift of the movie. It's like, what? What? Family death. Yeah. Yeah. They're having this nice barbecue, <clears throat> they're watching the Mets game outside, and then all of a sudden they're ex excavating the skeleton. Yeah. It's like, what? That one was my favorite. Um, but there's so many. That's good. like the best transition, honestly. Yeah. I, mine isn't necessarily a transition, but it's blatant foreshadowing where they show the skeleton again, the hand, and they're talking about it. And then right afterwards, they cut to the mother opening the door as like an older woman. And it's like, okay, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. now we get it. The, the transition that I loved was the one at the very end when um, 
but we see the aurora borealis fade away and then it looks like a moon has <laughs> yeah. appeared in the sky but <laughs> it's, it's a baseball, baseball <laughs> that like falls to earth and then you're in a baseball game it's like <laughs> really weird it's like it's so silly and it's it just like the idea of like the it's like why is the moon getting bigger and oh it's a baseball <laughs> <laughs> It's like Angels in the Outfield. Oh, man. Except frequency. <laughs> a lot of tie-ins with all these movies. Yeah, because... well, well, the Back to the Future thing was just that uh, when, after the serial killer's introduced, they keep looking at photographs and like, Mom's not in this photograph! They're <laughs> yeah. just like, yeah, Back to the Future rules. Oh, when the photograph yeah. is complete, then right. you're, you've saved the, the future. But, um, okay, but now that we're in the serial killer thing, you want to talk about the wallet? Okay. <laughs> there we go. So, Jimmy is talking to his dad, and he's and his dad is going to help him solve this serial killer murder case, because when Jimmy saved his dad's life, he accidentally killed his mother inadvertently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, uh, Dennis Quaid is so excited that he's alive, he goes and visits his wife in the hospital, and the ser- she ends up saving the serial killer, and... Then the serial killer targets her as a victim. And really quickly, the reason she saves the serial killer is because a doctor comes up and almost (laughs) mixes, like, he he adds a drug to the guy's IV drip that would have combined with the other one to poison and kill him. (laughs) And that was just, like, going to happen. (laughs) And apparently did happen. Yeah, yeah, it was like, just the world's worst doctor. (laughs) The angel of death. Oh my gosh. Well, and so, you know, all of a sudden Jim Caviezel has all these new memories of his mother being murdered. And so him and his dad decide to become a crime fighting team. (laughs) And since Jim Caviezel's an actual cop and Dennis Quaid is a firefighter, he's like, hey, just go do the cop work for me. So Dennis Quaid goes to this nightclub. And he watches these women who are supposed to get murdered. He prevents one murder, but then the second murder he does not prevent because the serial killer catches on to him. him. (laughs) And he assaults him in a bathroom and he almost chokes him to death. But this one hippie guy comes in and is like, hey man, what's wrong with him? And the cop's like, oh, drugs, man, you know, vomit and such. And he's like, I I get you, man. And they're just, oh, I've been there before. (laughs) Uh, and so, when he does that, the killer checks uh, Dennis Quaid's wallet, and he's like, who is this guy? Why is he looking at me? And he takes his ID, and he throws the wallet on the ground, and so... <laughs> says Dennis- himself, I'm gonna kill your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Fuck you, dude. And, <laughs> and so, Dennis Quaid relays all of this over the ham radio, which ham radio now stands for heart and mind. And he... Our heart is a motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's a good one. Absolutely. And, uh... Jimmy... Jimmy Caviezel's like, Yo, Dad, we got him! We can solve this murder now! You just have to give me your wallet! Because his... His fingerprints are all over your wallet. And his dad's like, What are you talking about? (laughs) He doesn't get it at all, but... What they decide to do is they put the wallet in a Ziploc bag. And, and then the, he starts to catch on, right? When he says Ziploc bag, oh, yeah, 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 I know where you're going with this. I, I get it. Are Ziploc bags around in 1969? Sure, but that's like, uh, 
the least question. <laughs> I don't think it was a ziplock. He said, "Grab one of those bags that you keep the extra transistor, or whatever." He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Now I know where you're going with this." Oh yeah. Whatever. So. so he throws the wallet in a bag. He throws the bag in underneath a floorboard, and then Jim Caviezel's like, 30 years later, whoop, wallet, wallet is here, magic. So in 30 years, no matter what happened to Dennis Quaid, uh, nobody ever renovated that house. Here's, here's my thing. So the serial killer took out his ID, but he didn't take anything else out of his wallet. Right. Doesn't Dennis Quaid need all the other shit that's in his wallet? Like, yeah, right. I thought there were two of those. He's like, that. oh, I guess I don't need my wallet for another yeah. thirty years. I'll get all this stuff. Let me just it's throw fine. it in this when bag. When I get my new driver's license, I'll just carry it around. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna put it in a pouch around his neck. Well, here's my nerdy question about that scene. Wouldn't the fingerprints have gotten wiped off from it being put in his pocket? From him touching it? Like, there's, I mean. I guess fingerprints are resistant. Yeah. He did say, too, he's like, when you take it out of your pocket, only use, you know, he, yeah. I don't know if you saw, he, he was careful. Yeah. But, but still, yeah, he, it yeah. was in his pocket. There, it was in his he was pocket. probably sweating. Yeah, it's, I, there's, I don't know, I really, I, it really seems like that's like, and it's like when they show the fingerprint, it's a perfect fingerprint, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> so. they do that, they do that awesome late 90s, early 2000s thing where they scan the fingerprint into the computer. They put in a fax and then, machine. And then, and then, and then the computer the goes, beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, boop. This and then guy. Immediately they have a result. Immediately. <laughs> Even on CSI it doesn't work that way. I mean, they don't get the results right away. But in movies... Yeah, how did computers get worse since the 90s? What happened there? In, yeah, the, in 90s know. movies, computers can do anything. Remember, remember in um, The Net when... Uh, Sandra Bullock has that like pizza website. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like where's my pizza website? Oh, pizza website. Sounds good. Yeah. But yeah, so the wallet is like pretty indicative of every sort of cheat they do with it. The other well, and the reason we keep comparing it to Looper is because well, there's that scene in Looper where is it Paul Dano is being tortured? Or is it... Is oh, yes. Man, yeah, man. and Paul Dan is being tortured, and as he's... And, like, in the That's, future, yeah. he's, like, running away somewhere, but as he's getting tortured in the past, he, like, the future self looks at his hand and, like, a finger... All of a sudden, his hands disappear. Yeah. And, um, they do that in this movie. <laughs> they do, uh... Yeah. Pretty much almost exactly that to the... At first, it's just, like, little stuff where, like, uh, on a table, like, the table gets burned, and then the burn appears, but then they do it to the, the killer, the killer gets scratched on his face, and then the scratch reappears. So Ryan Johnson definitely watched this, and oh, was like, oh, oh, I'm remaking sure. this. <laughs> for sure. <coughs> well, and even, he gets his, the serial killer gets his hand blown off, and yep. in the later, in the future... You see him look at his hand, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, and it's and that's what is, saves Jim Caviezel because he's being choked by that hand. But it's and it's yeah, you're and it's so close to what happens in Looper. It's like yeah, absurd it's that crazy. two different people can come up with a, two different movies about father and son relationships that involves a hand right. going the well, same time. And also to tie it back to the butterfly effect. There's that scene where Ashton Kutcher gets his arm. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, time travel really, really screws with arms and hands. God, you remember the exact quote? Oh, yeah. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> That's like my 
favorite part of Butterfly Effect. Like, oh. Where he's trying to turn <laughs> the, <laughs> turn the nap with yeah. his little thumbs. Oh. He's like, the, that's like the most depressed version of himself in that whole movie. He's really pale, that whole part, too. Even his lips. Did you notice that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, he like gives up, the, he gives up his life force so quickly. Yeah. Oh, well, I and, can't live <laughs> living just without arms. And while we're still on that Looper stuff, I want to talk about another, it's kind of a bad directing moment, but it's also kind of the editor's fault. Um, that first, that moment after Quaid survives the um, the fire, he comes back and Jim Caviezel's like trying to hear from him and Quaid uses his soldering iron to carve I'm still here, chief, in the desk. But the camera, usually, in a, especially a Hollywood movie like this, the common sense thing would be to have, like, C-H-I-E and then, like, the F finish. Yeah. But it starts on C-H-I and then we watch all of the letter E get signed <laughs> and then all of the letter F. That's, like... Every scene wastes so much time like that. <laughs> this week could have been half an hour shorter <laughs> yeah. so easily. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I That's such a little yeah. nitpicky thing, but it, it makes so much sense. But also think about, remember the scene, again, and for some reason all this happens after he survives the fire, and they're like, I, I lived, I have time to waste now. <laughs> uh, when he te- she goes to teach uh, Lil Chief, how to ride the bike again, and they have that overhead shot where it's just the bike riding, and then there's like another oh, shot the, of it, and just yeah. like this like spinning yeah. overlapping shot. <laughs> it's like um, it's just like with Dennis Quaid might as well have his arms stretched <laughs> yeah. up in the air. It's like so ridiculous, but it just goes on. They keep Little adding, and, and they like add more and more, and it just it's like it doesn't convey anything it adds nothing it's it, like, doesn't. it doesn't even add emotion to that scene <laughs> just dizzy it's already emotional enough yeah. like it could literally just be like a f- wide shot of him being like come on try again or like the sun like riding like a few feet away and it'll be fine just cut it short but they're just like like yeah we got this let's let's have this beautiful uh <laughs> mood piece in the air <laughs> i kind of want to talk about this quickly just do some uh, structural complaining. Uh, first off, for a, <laughs> for a movie... In- first off, that building that got caught on fire never would have structurally yeah. fallen apart. The fire did not get hot enough. It was a controlled demolition. <laughs> I didn't realize you were such an expert on structure. Bush, Bush did Buxton Fire. There's, yeah, we didn't talk about all the 9-11 games. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, so this movie came out right before 9-11. Well, not right before, like a year. Everything that happened the millennia before 9-11 is essentially up for grabs yeah. right before 9-11. Well, the, the IMDb trivia points out that the address of the house that they live in throughout the whole movie is 343, and uh, Dennis Quaid is a New York firefighter, and during 9-11, 343 firefighters died. Oh, Ooh. Also, one of the fire trucks had a 93 on it, Flight 93. Oh, boy. AKA so frequency Ooh. is its own prophecy, honestly. Yeah. It was predicting yeah. the future. But it's also But such, it didn't do anything about <laughs> it. But it's also such a pre-9-11 movie in that like firefighters are like, whatever. Like no <laughs> there's like so low pressure to everything. No consequences. Yeah. Whatever. Oh yeah! Good. Like that scene where he climbs in the action scene in the beginning, where he like climbs out the manhole, and right as his like last foot's coming out, like fire just shoots out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's no reality to it. Firefighters are just like you might as well hey. just like lower the sunglasses. Wait, 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 wait! Speaking of sunglasses, 
Okay, this is such a perfect segue. I found out that Jim Caviezel, he turned down being Cyclops in X-Men oh, to do man. this movie. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if that What a for weird him. casting choice. <laughs> you would have been a terrible Cyclops. I mean, I love, I love James Marsden, but he was not good as Cyclops yeah, he wasn't in X-Men. Great. But then again, Cyclops is like such a boring character. Yeah, James yeah. Marsden is like a funny character actor. Yeah. He's, he's funny as like a goofball. That's why he's getting enchanted and... Uh, Excellent love. Drive. <laughs> 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 and Thirty Rock. He's also in Thirty Rock. Oh Rides yeah, too. he's great in Thirty Rock. He's uh, Liz Lemon's Chris secret Cross. lover. Really? Did you? See, did I you... never watched a lot of Thirty <gasps> Rock. Oh man, Rock. I know. Yeah. I know. Oh man, it's one of those ones really I need to get on. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched sporadic seasons here and there. So good. I think we can lend you a season. Yeah. Oh, oh really? Yeah. If it, you have Netflix, is it on it's Netflix? On Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Oh well then. And we have the two worst seasons. Anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, Wait. Hold on. I have one more piece of trivia that I think that you'll want to know. Okay. I found out that this movie was originally supposed to be made in 1997 with instead of Dennis Quaid. Sylvester Stallone. Oh, man. Oh, man. And. Damn it. Rennie Ham Harlan. Hamlet. Rennie Harlan was set to direct it. Which, can you imagine what that would have been like? It would have been so much campier. Rennie Harlan directed Nightmare on Elm Street. No, not. Not Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm sorry. What? Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Tony. Tony just almost did a water spit thing. But it's it's all, it's so funny because 1987 is the year. So he was going to make this, and it must have fallen through. And he was like, "Well, Deep Blue Sea," because he did Deep Blue Sea the next year. And this is right after Sylvester Stallone. The year after Sylvester Stallone did Daylight, which is oh, another man. vaguely fire related movie. Yeah, Daylight. Oh. That's a great movie. But, but yeah. not great in that it's a good movie. This, this would have been a choice. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's father-son movies uh, don't really work out. No. There's no... You can't really get away with, like, a homoerotic father-son movie. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's Oedipus. Yeah, but he doesn't fuck his dad. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, I lean heavily on the, the later syllable of that. Um, that's pretty much all the... the Great trivia I had about this movie. I mean, it made back his budget, and uh, All right. Elizabeth Mitchell broke her nose. Oh, <laughs> it must have been during like the fight scene. But... Yeah, it was probably when she pounces on the killer at the end. Yeah, it looked like she like dropped out of a vent on him. It's it's kind of like in uh, what is Darth Rengi's Dark Place. Garth Rengi's Dark Place. <laughs> yeah, where they like throw the cat in every yeah. once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Elizabeth Mitchell looked like, where they just like they're like, okay, jump, and she's just like, ah! yeah, they might as well just like drop the rag doll for how, how believable it was. <laughs> so nuts! Oh, oh my god! Okay, well, talk about your structure, Paolo. So my, my real deal complaints. Um, so, well, first off. We talked about this before with Butterfly Effect that time travel is usually a sad thing. And this comes up again here where it's a yeah, sad thing. Yeah, it has thing. consequences. Uh, and and this, there's a lot of stuff where we, we see people who are in, like, Jim Caviezel's in a bad situation and by the end he's in a good situation and so on and so forth. But there are no character arcs in this movie. 
there's no like character development. There's no, uh, yeah. uh, there's no, I mean, we talked about how like no one really has character. Yeah, time travel solves all problems. It really does. Solves it into the point where you're like, I'm emotionally healed. <laughs> My life is perfect. <laughs> like, I'm still the exact same person I always was, regardless of what happened, but now it's cool. Now I like it. And the only thing that's different is that Gordo has money, but he's still the same. It's not like Gordo's at the baseball wow. game at the end, just being like, fuck you, I'm gonna <laughs> knock this out of the park. He's still like... Just dumpy dad in his <laughs> nice car, and then Dennis Quaid like hunches more. But no one, like, <laughs> the only thing people learn because they learn that time travel is well, that communication well, through time. But is Paolo, maybe they were all good people to start with, and they didn't need to learn anything. Yeah, well, I mean, Jim Caviezel was in it, so that's probably <laughs> probably why he liked the movie. <laughs> oh yeah. So because this is a Hollywood movie and. It's definitely trying to appeal to a mainstream audience. There's this issue of the, the screenplay. We've, we've talked about how it's kind of stupid and stuff. But the screenplay is essentially trying to do the, the typical three-act structure. Uh, and so the, in the three-act structure, you have basically the opening. The first act is exposition. And then something kind of happens that leads to an inciting incident. The thing that sets the plot in motion, and the remainder of the plot is in reaction to that. The second act is... So is the first act of this movie the thing that sets everything in motion, the ham radio? Well, hold on, because oh. that's part of what I'm getting into. Uh, the second act is the rising action and building up to the climax, and then the, the third act is the finale. Like, uh, the, the big action scene at the end, followed by epilogue, stuff like that. So, uh, presumably... The end of fir- the first act, the turning point, the inciting incident, is um, they get the ham radio and the father and son communicate. And if we're going to be really generous, it, the inciting incident is is John saying to Frank, you are going to die tomorrow. Uh, because that's like the first thing where like time, time is being affected. If that's the case, because that happens pretty early... The second act of this movie is longer than the first and third right. acts combined. Yeah. Yeah. And has, like I said, a gap where nothing happens. Ten minutes of just wasted time where there's, <laughs> like I said, no character development. The, uh, also, if the inciting incident usually sets up the movie. So the inciting incident would be, I, let me think of like a really easy... Okay, for Groundhog Day, the inciting incident is, I it's Groundhog Day again. And then the whole movie follows that point. Sure. And the yeah. climax would be the day where he does everything right. That's the third act of sure. the final scene. So, in this movie, if the end of the first act is John Tully Frank, you're going to die, that plot point, uh, essentially, the you're going to die in the fire, or even you're going to die, basically gets resolved within 10 minutes of the inciting incident. And that's when, after that gets resolved, there's like that ten minute gap where the movie's like, "Oh shit, <laughs> we kind of we kind of solved the movie." Like at, at that point, we need like, to add another inciting incident. Hence, when the serial killer shows up. But uh, but yeah, like um, well, and even with the, the cigarette thing, like you said, they they're like, "Oh, you start the fire, but you're gonna die of smoking." But they're like, "Whatever." Like at the, <laughs> yeah. like at the very end of the movie, there's a shot where he like crumples up cigarettes yeah. and throws them in the garbage, and that's like as much effort as they put into that. <laughs> But so, yeah. Because that's how easy it is to quit smoking, Paolo. Yeah. It is, yeah. Didn't it, you know? Yeah. It, I I quit smoking many times. <laughs> it's very easy well, every time. what happens is you struggle for a couple of days, then you have to solve a, a murder mystery. Yeah. You get distracted. Yeah. And then yeah. you forget yeah. your yeah. And then you 
after that is all resolved, you're like, you know what? I don't need these anymore. I just okay. got to solve murders. Yeah. <laughs> New addiction. That'd be great if there was a murder show, but it was a cop who's like addicted to murder, like being around murder. And so like when I'd he's, watch that show. he's like too good, he's too good, and so he needs <laughs> more murder. So he has to like let some people go. I don't know. There's like there's no way that would work. Wait, isn't that kind of Dexter? <laughs> it is, but he's but if Dexter was a cop who made another person be Dexter's. I oh, I, he I, wasn't the killer. Yeah, he just like to watch people uh, kill. Yeah, or not, or, not even or, watch people kill, but just like go to the crime scene and be death. like, hmm, and like stick his hand in the corpse and be like, it's still fresh. <laughs> I love this. Oh, that's kind of like Hannibal. Yeah, so it's oh, like yeah. if that's... Hannibal, if Hannibal was the cop and Dexter <laughs> was the killer, <laughs> and then uh, Andre Brower was the police, <laughs> the police sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> and he never ages. We call Brooklyn Seven and the Visa Seven, <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> so this idea is off the rails. Uh, uh, wow. Man, I had a I had a point. The three extra yeah, yeah. things. So so basically, yeah, the movie. In the movie, the movie realizes that fucked up, and so it just is like, you know what? Let's just do another. Let's do another exciting incident. Let's let's create like in the middle of Act Two uh, another like Act One, <laughs> and, uh, like a mini Act One, and uh, yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, if there's half an hour less in this movie, they probably would have figured out a way to organically introduce yeah. something. Like a good editor would have placed these things, like placed more. Serial killer clues earlier on, so it doesn't just come up arbitrarily. Well, a good editor wouldn't have given us all those excellent transitions. <laughs> yeah, good point. On Mr. Show, there's like, a joke where uh, a guy, like, David Cross is talking, it's like a Boogie Nights parody, and David Cross uh, does this bit where he um, raises his hands and starts spinning in the air, and they, they like play this like 70s music <laughs> over it, and they just start like overlaying images of him spinning and just like it like pads out the scene for like 30 seconds and then he just stops and the music ends and he just goes back to the party and they said on the commentary that that was added by the editor like that editor wrote that joke himself where he just like oh, <laughs> he spun That's briefly funny. and then just did it and the editor just like overlaid a bunch of times out of that music and so it makes me wonder if that's exactly what the editor of this movie did or he just was like not not because yeah. of Mr. Show but just was like yeah why not it's cool I like this yeah it's kind of fun to look at and the movie structurally it does it gives us two climaxes two kind of yeah which I really hate well like because <laughs> Yeah, because you're like, when's the end of the movie? Yeah, honestly, at that point, like, when Dennis Quaid is fighting the bad guy and then drowns him. Yeah. But then, wait, no, something's still wrong. And then he appears in the same house within 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Which makes no sense at all. Well, yeah. and why did he try to go kill Jim Caviezel? Yeah, exactly, right? What is why, that why wouldn't he just run away? Yeah, that serial killer, for someone who, like, puts so much effort into not getting caught, he, like, just throws that all away. <laughs> and these people who can't prove that he's the killer are, like, kind of onto him. He, like, just, like, is, like, shoots. He shoots the evidence box of all of his trinkets so it explodes all over the street. And then he's, like, loudly firing his, like, as you point out, his, like, laser gun revolver <laughs> down and, like, just shooting at Dennis Quaid. And, um... Yeah, really, why does he come after Jim Caviezel? Is there any point where Jim Caviezel is goes 
like within 1999 year. Well, Jim Carrey yeah, goes up to him at the bar. Oh, that, okay, but, that's right. I but at that time, it. the serial killer could have been like, "Oh man, they're on to me," and right. then just ran away. Yeah, also, exactly. The serial killer's a cop, and so he knows how this works. <laughs> 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 Like it could be very easily be like, oh, hmm, this evidence. Well, I better very quickly come up with my alibi, or I better very carefully and subtly kill this guy. Maybe not in his house in a loud, distracting way, but yeah, maybe. That's just, why that whole second climax was just really, really redundant. Yeah, it just, just like, made it that much worse. Yeah, and again, there's like that. The only reason yeah. that the serial killer comes after Jim Caviezel is so that. Old Dennis Quaid can murder him. Yeah, and go. I'm still here, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> With his wonderful white hair. Also, and a white jacket. Another bad shot. I want to point out during that that scene where the the two killers are getting the the father son. Um, Same killer, different time. Yeah, Ooh. old killer and young killer. Killer, killer, you're I the think killer. It's, and so I think, yeah, it's Young Killer is attacking Dennis Quaid, but, well, first, Old Killer is attacking Jim Caviezel, and somehow Dennis Quaid can hear it, because, like, again, the button only needs to be pushed occasionally. I'm just, hammering. Like, just only to keep it, little kids are, like, messing with Yeah, it, just apparently. to keep it from falling asleep. Yeah, yeah. It, like, works like, like a computer. <laughs> uh, but, um, so, Jim Caviezel's getting hit, and Dennis Quaid is like, Little Chief, what's wrong? Or whatever the fuck he says. And um, <laughs> they use, it cuts to like a close-up of like a table leg. So you know he's about to get beamed. And then it cuts to an overhead shot. And right when he gets hit, the camera spins in a <laughs> yeah. circle for no reason. And then just like he falls down. And then it cuts to like normal shots again. But again, like what the fuck is with Gregory Hobbit these overhead spinning shots? They well, never are relevant to what's happening. Well, and... It kind of feels like this shot. This movie was shot for TV because everyone yeah, a lot is. Of times it does yeah, everyone like is that. cut at the chest or at the knees. Yeah, like you never ever see a full body shot of anyone. It's always just like, well, we'll just do waist up. That's good <laughs> enough. <laughs> and it also is like really boxy. It feels really boxy. Yeah, and even on the DVD, it's like a super wide screen where it has those big bars beneath and above, yeah. and it still feels boxy. Like, they don't, no moment is a widescreen moment in this movie. It's all very much, yeah, like, I think you said during the movie, it seems like they just set the camera on the table close to the actors <laughs> yeah. for every shot. Well, I, yeah, let's talk about the, just some of the dialogue. We kind of mentioned some of it, but it's just so, it's so generic. <laughs> Which, that's yeah. like one of the hardest things to take notes. Usually, when I'm taking notes for these movies, I'm just <laughs> quoting dialogue. Because that's like the hardest okay. thing to remember. Yeah. And in this movie, it's just like, it was a Pretty fool's easy, game. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, like, the one thing I wrote down is when, in that really tense scene where they're, they're, uh, Jim Caviezel's waiting to find out whether or not Quaid dies in the fire... So Lil Chief and Gordo and Satch <laughs> are all sitting around. Satch is Andre Brower. Right. I, I just I should clarify. Um, and Gordo is Noah Emmerich. But they're sitting around a, in a bar and they're trying to remember Frank because it's thirty years to the day he died. And the conversation is like, oh yeah, remember it was Halloween and he drove us around and you wanted to be a cop and I was always getting locked up. It's like, man, what fucking, that's the best you yeah. can do to be like, I'm, I always played the robber. <laughs> like that's, I mean, I granted, apparently they were only six, so they don't have much to remember, but like they have no profound moments at all. Like just like the tritest possible memory. And also, of course, it's something that foreshadows that he'll eventually be a cop. So it's, 
Yeah. It's not even like it's not even character stuff. Yeah. It's just like real. Uh, the uh, also there's that um that part when they first are talking on the ham radio and um. They have, like, no chemistry over that ham radio. <laughs> no, they don't. They're just like, you dumbass. Like, just <laughs> the attitude. Well, and, but when Jim Caviezel says, like, yeah, I know I know what's going to happen in that game because it happened 30 years ago. And Dennis Quaid says, I think ex- almost exactly what he says was, 30 years ago, yeah, right, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> just, like, hit all the beats of, like, I don't believe you, guy. It was a funny joke. And then what does Jim Caviezel say? He's like, you're telling me... You want to know what game I'm talking about? He's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to know. Well, and then immediately becomes like, <laughs> you stay away from my son. Yeah. You pretended to be my son. I swear to God, if you touch my kid, I'll hunt you down to the day I die. I'll electrocute you and steal your <laughs> steal your gun. Um, oh, there's that. Oh scene. yeah, we need to talk about that. Part yeah, too. Okay. we'll get to that in a second. Just one more thing I gotta Sorry. quote um, is the um, the part where uh, the first time Quaid is trying to teach his son how to ride a bike, and the kid rides, like, <laughs> five feet, and just, like, falls onto a mound of grass, like, the, the softest fall that any child has yeah. ever had on a bicycle, and the kid, like, gets up, and, and like, mom cries, runs out, mom yeah. runs, somehow she just knows, she runs out, she did, the kid didn't she's hurt a it. very attentive mom, yeah. that's her characteristic. Very true, tr- okay, very attentive. attentive. That's, that's her thing. And she's an attentive nurse, too. Okay, yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> She's um, not a robot. She's attentive. Hey, robots can be very attentive. <laughs> Motion sensors. She's her like, eyes are always open. She's like Rosie from the Jetsons. Yeah. <laughs> but um, after, so after she like hugs him, the kid runs inside and Dennis Quaid like very, very lightly says, hey, don't quit on me now. Like almost exactly like that. And she responds, don't be so tough on him. <laughs> This, yeah, I don't know. that's just like, that's as far as they're like... Also, they, the kid says nothing. Yeah. <laughs> they really don't want to make you dislike Dennis Quaid at all. Yeah. At the beginning of the movie. They played it really safe. But okay, <coughs> Tony, you want to talk about the, the electrocution uh, scene? Right, so Dennis Quaid is um, in a police, like, holding room. Oh, man. Waiting to be questioned. And the serial killer, who's also a cop, comes in and threatens him with a gun, leaves, and then... Dennis Quaid, MacGyver, Jerry Riggs, this this thing, <laughs> seeing the electrical box, and where did he pull that wire from? Do you, I, I want to. I, I want to know, know where, where he got from. the coffee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think he must have pulled it from the ceiling. I okay. Guess, oh, but... you're right. I think he did. Okay. Yeah. Regardless, Dennis Quaid grabs this electrical wire, opens up the electrical box, ties it up to the um, the switchboard, pours coffee on the ground. And then lights a cigarette and waits for the serial killer to walk back in and gives him the, what did you call it? What do you call a smile? The Bermuda smile. The Bermuda smile. smile. <laughs> Dennis Quaid has the Bermuda <laughs> smile because you get lost in it for days. Uh, and throws the wires into the coffee and electrocutes the serial killer. But did you notice, okay, this also drove me nuts. The serial killer was wearing rubber sole shoes. Yes. So he would not he would have been like But I think the idea is that he throws... Well, because part of inside the door, and you think you just get electrocuted to touch on the door, which, like, why did right. like, yeah. but then, he, because, but then if he oh, does that, okay. then he gets electrocuted in the hallway, and he doesn't open the door, oh, but, okay. so it's like, again, it's stupid, it makes no sense, but it sort of makes no sense, because it's a plot contrivance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, either also, way. Also, Dennis Quaid could have just escaped. Yeah. I mean, if he's going to do that, he might as well just, like, stood, like, 
uh, like his back against the wall next to the door, and then when he came in, just like karate chops on the back of the neck. Just as easily. Or just taking that wire and wrapped it around his neck, strangling anything. Yeah. Grab a book (laughs) with it. Throw the coffee in his face. Yeah, coffee. Yeah. Throw he throws coffee in his face. It cuts the the future and the older serial killer. It's like, oh, my eyes are brown for some reason. (laughs) Now we're just rewriting this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is okay. I was trying to figure that out. Besides, like cutting thirty minutes, and we talked about Looper. But yeah, what is the best way to like? Is there a good way to do like a father son romance slash? Well, I think the, the main problem is they don't establish any kind of relationship between the father and son. Partially because the son is so young. When his dad dies. Yeah. Right. And they don't give the son any lines of dialogue in the movie. No. And so I think that's part of the reason, or that would be part of the rewrite if I were to do this movie, is to make the son, like, a little older. Actually, I, what I would probably do is make the son the same age as the dad in the flashback. Yeah. That's what I kind of thought was supposed to be the whole spiel. Because in, the, in 1969, I think Dennis Quaid is supposed to be, like, 45-ish. Something, and yeah. Is he? Is he 85 then? It's 75, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Something 30, like that, yes. I they don't really, okay, they I, don't give yeah. a specific age. Okay, so yeah, I guess 75 <laughs> would make sense. And, yeah. 75. and then Jim Caviezel is, what, 36, he yeah. said? Yeah, 36. So there's a 10-year difference. Yeah. But I think it would, I think also what I probably would have done is given Jim Caviezel more of a stable home life. Or, like, a tumultuous home life, but he's got a family so that he can relate to his dad and be like, oh, yeah, I've got a son. I know what it's like. I, I try to be the father that I didn't have. Right, yeah. they could, Yeah, Yeah. the arc of, like, he dies and it was, like, an imperfect marriage. Like, it was on the rocks. And by the time travel stuff, he gets this information that he can save their relationship. Yeah. Like, uh, almost yeah, like, made this a really great Almost, yeah. almost like any... Jimmy from The Wire. Yes. <laughs> Jimmy Caviezel or Jimmy from the Wire. <laughs> Jimmy Caviezel. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's all about fleshing out Jim Caviezel's character. Because they, yeah. Dennis Quaid just does a, such a good job of making himself so appealing in this movie. Yeah. He's just got that charisma yeah. Yeah. where you're like, oh, I could watch you for days. Yeah. But you I think... It's his whole body, the Bermuda smile. No, it's, it's his mouth because his top lip. I, I this, noticed it. Perfectly flat, out. but his bottom lip kind of like pouts yeah. out in a way that makes it like like the lowest point is right in the middle, and it slopes up. And he only he like shows just the top row teeth, so it's like a like really perfect triangle. <laughs> oh, I love Bermuda that somebody smile. came up with that. That is awesome. But um. I uh, I think if they were going to try to make this movie to be just like a good crowd pleaser, like still a better movie, but try to keep it for an audience who wants that real tear-jerky thing, they could have done it entirely from Dennis Quaid's point of view, especially if they want to keep up the mystery element oh, yeah. of Dennis Quaid. That oh, also would have yeah, been, cool. been better, too, if they yeah. just chosen one of the points of view. Yes. Or, and just him being like, gets a... Uh, radio messages like I'm your son dad you're gonna die tomorrow and then like how that movie plays out from yeah. there really yeah like, that actually would have been way better yeah, yeah. and Damn then it. you have to there's it, 
Yeah, you'd have to come up with an entirely different ending for that. But. And Jim Caviezel could have already been with the girl who was pregnant and didn't know how he was going to be a father because his father died when he was so young. And then they yeah. could tie those two things together. Where he's like, Dad, I'm nervous yeah. I about never, being a dad. You never gave me advice, dude. Or the art house version, which is that <laughs> he can only save one parent. No matter what he oh. does, oh. to save one, it causes the other so one to die. choice, but and Jim's choice. And who does choice. he choose? He yeah. chooses the father. Or it's just like a really dark movie where he just like keeps trying to find the solution and it like ends yeah. on a note of like, he will never truly. Right. <laughs> and so like, like, the, like The Wire, where it just is like a circle, will it be or, broken? Or like Butterfly Effect. Or like Butterfly right. Effect. Where he just kills himself in the womb. Oh, that's the director. You yeah, guys watch the director's yeah, cut? Oh, God. <laughs> like, when it flies back, it just ends with him and his son throwing the ham radio in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or going into a field and beating him in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> that's the office space yeah. setting. <laughs> yeah, that would have been perfect. Any of those would have been a better movie. Yeah. Yeah. But this the, the thing is, like, even though those all would have been better movies, this movie still wasn't terrible. No. It's really fun because it it's, like, fun, such yeah. a ba- series of mistakes that it, like, has a lot of charm in its, in its yeah, and foolishness. Dennis. <laughs> and yeah, Dennis. and Dennis. Yeah, it, this movie wouldn't work at all without Dennis Quaid. At yeah. least the version no, that, would be gone. that we have, yeah. it doesn't work. But Dennis Quaid is so fucking charming. <laughs> and can, like, really, he doesn't need, he's one of those actors who doesn't really need a developed character because you're just okay with taking his characteristics <laughs> and applying them on the totally, character. Yeah. Like, I can't. Yeah, even when he was, um, Oh, what was that Western we just watched with him in it? Oh, extru- oh uh, not Extreme Prejudice. Uh, Long Riders. Yeah, Long Riders. That movie was fucking boring. <laughs> and J- uh, Dennis Quaid in it is kind of supposed to be like a sort of bad guy. But I still, every time he came on yeah. screen, I was like, oh, Dennis, you're so great. <laughs> well, and even something like Far From Heaven, which we just talked about in the last oh, episode, yeah. he's he's playing more against type, and that's definitely one of his best performances, because yeah. he's playing against type. But a part of the reason you can cast him as the stereotypical, like, handsome... 50s husband is because he has that like automatic charm yeah. that you would need to be that so I have like that like he has those he I, at one point had matinee idol good looks now he looks older <laughs> but he yeah he's he like, still looks great he still looks great I don't get me wrong but I'm just saying he doesn't look like a matinee idol no, I can't yeah. really use that expression but yeah he he does he's like again this movie there's so few movies that are good cases in favor of Dennis Quaid because he's in so many shitty movies. Yeah. Like Priest. Or, Le- not Priest, Legion. Uh, he's in Legion? He's in Legion. Oof. And he's at least, I mean, I oh. would like to say that he he's the best part of that movie, but there's no best part of Legion. I will say that he's great in It Takes Two, starring Lindsay Lohan as twins. Oh, Parent Trap. Oh, is that the Parent Trap? It Wait, takes what's... two is um, oh, that's Mary the Kate Olsen's, match, right? Yeah, Steve yeah. Okay, my bad. Which is still a pretty damn good movie. Yeah, that movie's pretty good. <laughs> Kirstie Alley. <laughs> <laughs> she killed it in that. Yeah. And as we were talking about before, during the movie, um, Dreamscape, which is another <laughs> super silly movie, uh, but Dennis Quaid's like a really good straight man for silly movies because you like him enough to be like, I don't really care how stupid this movie is. I just want, I just want Dennis to be okay. And uh, so, yeah, he gets you through a lot of stuff. Uh, do you guys do you guys have anything else that you want to add? Man, I ran out of notes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I didn't. Pretty, yeah, we were pretty efficient. That was pretty <laughs> good. Talk to. Well, um, I, I, I keep forgetting to do this with uh, all our guests. Tony, uh, at the end of our episodes, we okay. kind of do, like, we'll ask for, like, final thoughts on the movie, and then if you were to make someone watch this to learn something about filmmaking oh, or God. whatever, what would it be? Okay. So, well, uh, Carrie and I will do, I'll do mine first, okay. and Carrie will do hers, and you can do yours, but just, like, just so you know. Uh, I'm never prepared for this. Yeah, story. that's why I'm going to do mine first. Um, but yeah, well, we kind of, I kind of said my concluding thoughts in general already, but yeah, Frequency is a really, really entertaining, it's like one of the perfect sick movies. <laughs> if you're, if you have to be home, I, if you're just laying on a couch under a blanket, I can't think of a, per, a better time to watch this movie. Yeah. And it would be really enjoyable the first time you see it. Even if, you, if you've listened to this and you've had everything spoiled, it's still really just so strangely assembled that it like it's hard to be just bored and zone yeah. out during it. Weirdly, the serial killer part is actually more boring yeah. than the father-son romance part. But um, yeah, I guess because I've talked so many times in so many different episodes about examples of really strong directing... Um, this is a great example of just classic bad directing. And it's very much non-auteur directing as well. Uh, there can be bad auteur directing, but this is just journeyman, super generic. You see this a lot with directors who are really strong with TV directing, and when they get a movie, they just treat it like TV. The worst offender on that front is John Avnet, who is a really great TV director. At least his Justified episodes are awesome. And then when he directs a piece of shit like 88 Minutes, you wonder, <laughs> what was he doing? Like, was he just not paying attention? Uh, but as I talked about, yeah, there's so many inappropriate shots, bad choices, shots, scenes that are shot confusingly. There's no consistency. Uh, there's no style. It's basically, and considering how bad the screenplay is, it's kind of amazing that his, his directing doesn't drag the movie down even further but it's also it's almost so bad that it's it just like has it leaves no effect on you it doesn't impart emotions or ideas or anything so yeah if you really want a great example of a typical hollywood movie that has very clear-cut bad direction this is it there you go that's mine this is a hard one to have a takeaway from because... And it could be anything. I, I, I just want to clarify, because you always have trouble with these. It could be like, this person is a great actor. And this is a yeah, great performance. I guess, something like that. I guess my takeaway is, I really appreciate Dennis Quaid and how charismatic he is. There's not that many actors and actresses out there nowadays that can just carry a movie based on how charismatic they are. There's actually a lot of actors who, once they're put in lead roles... They really bomb a movie. Who was it we were talking about the other day? Was it Josh Hartnett? <laughs> oh, well, we've, we've talked about this before, but there's some other person we're talking about who should be a character actor and is always a leading man. Yeah. Oh, maybe it was um, Chris Pine or... Something like that. that. Yeah, it was Chris... I think it was Chris actor. Pine because yeah. he is... I always get Chris Pine and Chris Evans confused because they're both just generic white guys, but... <laughs> Um, and they're both superheroes of, in movies, and they do franchises, but I think it's Chris Pine. He was in uh, Wet Hot American Summer, the TV show, yeah. mm-hmm. and he was so funny yeah, on it. He was. And he only had, like, a little bit part, and, but he never does comedies. Like, the only comedy I can think of that he was in 
Well, there's two. And they were both way before he was really famous. Uh, One is called Blind Date, and he plays a blind guy who goes on a bunch oh of dates. My God. Yeah, there's a, there's a scene <laughs> wow. in the trailer where the woman goes, What? Are you blind? And he goes, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is awful. It's such a bad movie. And, um, and what's his name? Um, the guy who sleeps with Stifler's mom in American Pie is his Jason buddy. Jason Pigs. No. Oh. Uh, oh. That, uh, what is that guy? It's the guy who only poops Sean William Scott? No, that's Stifler. Uh, I can't remember. What yeah. is his name? It's Finch the, is his name yeah. in American Pie. What is, I don't know that. Eddie K. Thomas. There, there we go. go. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's a piece of shit. Right <laughs> well, so Blind Date. And then the other one where he's in a comedic role is called Just My Luck. With Lindsay Lohan, where he and Lindsay Lohan oh accidentally touch each other, and she has incredible good luck, and he has incredible bad luck, and they switch looks? Because <laughs> that makes sense. But anyway, he does a great job in both of those movies, even though they're both bad movies, because he's being funny. And he doesn't really get to be funny very often, and now he's always like the serious action guy who's you know, has a, a lost love or whatever. And Did it, you ever see Smoke and Aces? Yes. He's in that. Remember, he's one of those brothers? Those yes! Cr- and he was good. I mean, I yeah, didn't even realize I, that was I like, like That movie is, like, yeah. insane and so-so. Oh, yeah. He played Alicia that character Keys. well. Yeah, she was awesome. <laughs> I think I saw that in theaters. Did you? Oh, yeah. that be kind of a fun one to see in theaters. Yeah, I, I liked it. But, um, yeah, anyway, tying my point back to where I was, um, Charisma is not really something that you can gain. Um, you can't really, like, learn how to be charismatic, I don't think. Otherwise, I think that a lot more people would be more charismatic. <laughs> I'm in charisma class right now. <laughs> um, and so people who have it, you know, that it, it's just so, so wonderful to see it being used usefully in a film. And unfortunately, Dennis Quaid... It doesn't happen that often for him, but it should. He's only in his early 60s. Let's give him some more work. Yeah, let's get this guy an Oscar nomination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Was he nominated <clears throat> for Far From Heaven? He was, I think he was nominated for Golden Globe, but that's, oh. yeah, he's never been Oscar nominated. That's a bummer. I, I guess my takeaway is go team Dennis Quaid. All right. And also, you don't have to go, we have been going longer and longer with our lessons. Sure. You really don't have to okay. expand on it that much. Um, well, I will say that I agree it's definitely like a perfect type of sick or like Sunday morning early yeah. movie. Um, also, if there's one reason to watch this movie besides Dennis Quaid, we never mentioned Michael Sarah is like a t- yeah. is like 10 years old at this. So yeah. if you want to see Michael Sarah, definitely. But... Um, he even has a Queen's accent, <laughs> even <laughs> and, though he's Canadian. And red hair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, um, I would say to take away anything as far as, like, filmmaking goes, uh, I agree with what you said, Paul, about the direction, but definitely what you talked about before is the editing. I think this movie, besides just the, the actual transitions of it uh, between scenes... The movie could have just been edited down to be a lot better and could have been... Just a lot of, like, uh, like the scene with the, the dad and the son are talking, they could have made that, like, less montage and more of, like, an actual conversation, I think. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of times where you can see the editing is really getting in the way of most of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. 
But otherwise, I still like it. It's still a fun movie. I mean, I've, oh yeah, I've, I saw it. I think in 1999, so I was like seven or eight, and, <laughs> and I still like it. So it's been like 15 years. Well, I think we had a lot of fun talking about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And thank you guys again for yeah, having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks Tony. Thanks awesome. for Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then I guess that wraps it up. Um, uh, this has been the Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tony. Thanks for listening. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Caro. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash paolo-erasmus. Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright. Thanks again for listening.